Welcome to Reading Between the Reels. I'm Craig Dickinson. And I'm Matt Leader. Today on the show, we are taking a look at the 1984 Ghostbusters. And, but before we do that, we want to make sure that we mention uh, we were on Coffee with Kenobi. It'll be uh, two weeks ago by the time this was released. Uh, it's show number 465, the top five things uh, Star Wars A New Hope teaches us. Uh, Dan Zare was nice enough to have us on, and we had a great time talking about A New Hope and uh, all these wonderful things that we were able to pull from it. Some of the some of the things we do on the show here and, and some other kind of thematic beats that we talked about. And uh, it was a great show. We had a lot of fun. I hope you guys will check that out as well. And uh, we also want to just say... Hello to all those that uh, have now subscribed uh, to our show. Thanks to, to Dan letting us plug uh, our show a little bit. And so welcome. And uh, there was one other thing we wanted to do, Matt. What else did we want to do before we jump into Ghostbusters? Uh, before we jumped into Ghostbusters, we wanted to talk about the new, better Dune movie. Yeah, now that we made you rewatch David Lynch's Dune. I know Matt struggled through that one. That was, that was, that was bad on my, on my end. But we got to watch the new one. We both got to see uh, uh, Denny Villeneuve's new Dune, the much better Dune, yeah. Dune Part One. And uh, Matt, what are your kind of just some one-off thoughts about about the new Dune? So, um, I, I think overall, like I have to say, it was just a much better film. Uh, it was beautifully shot. Uh, the acting was fantastic, and I really expected it to be with the caliber of actors that they had on the film. Um, uh, I think, you know, we have those, those categories that we kind of go through when looking at a film and every single category I think is a vast improvement over the Lynch one. Um, some just random thoughts that uh, struck me that I kind of made notes of and feel free to jump in Craig at any time. Um, the first thing that, that struck to me is it had kind of an old school sci-fi vibe to it. Like it reminded me the designs, especially the ships of something I would see on old sci-fi book covers, like the really old ones from like the fifties and sixties that look very cliched and I don't know, just dated to me at this point, but I kind of enjoyed that because the book is from the sixties. And so it felt like it was kind of going back to that time a little bit. Um, it struck me the, the amount of brutalist architecture. And uh, for anyone who doesn't know, brutalist architecture was um, thought of, it kind of came about in the 50s and 60s, so right about the time Dune was written. And it focused primarily on um, straight lines, geometric shapes, and using lots and lots of concrete. And um, if you think of like modern design, like concrete, glass, metal, right? Um, Brutalist architecture is more focused on the concrete side. And a lot of the buildings on Arrakis had a very brutalist architecture, which I found a very interesting choice. Uh, the, the set designs themselves, they felt very cold, very empty, uh, very austere, cold tone-wise, because obviously Arrakis is very hot. Um, I think that the uh, palm trees were quite interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, they made a point of, you know, how it takes what's 100, 100 people's worth of water uh, to provide um, life for these, what, 10 palm trees, I think they had. Right. Yep. And that right there, and I believe that's also in the novel. It's, it seemed familiar. Yeah. So I think so, yeah. Um, but that screams of, <laughs> of um, colonialism and... Uh, this idea of these outsiders, and they mentioned this directly in the film, these outsiders coming in, taking the spice from Arrakis with no real um, thought towards the Fremen, right? The, the natives. And we pause the show for like a snack break. And my wife goes, you know, if you replace the spice with oil and Arrakis for Iraq, <laughs> this, this could be a story about the Middle East. And people coming in and trying to take oil. Like, yeah, probably yeah. could. And to me, that speaks of a story that's that's relevant to our times. Um, and so I loved that aspect of it. Um, the costumes I thought were fantastic. And <laughs> we mentioned on the last show, the Spacing Guild uh, people. 
mm-hmm. the the they looked like these weird slug creatures, and it was horrible. I hated them. And the space and guild looked fantastic in this one. It looked weird and alien while still remaining true to that the book and the lore, where they are these transformed humans that are within this kind of chamber. Um, and so it felt like there's this wonderful blend between both kind of familiar um, with the military suits of, of House Atreides and um, the very, very much like Middle Eastern inspired Fremen and uh, House Harkonnen and the Spacing Guild and the Emperor, like everything felt distinct while also feeling familiar and just a bit weird in a good way, like alien. It felt, you know, alien. And so I love the design of of that. I do have two things, and I feel like it's nitpicking, but I'll mention them. Let's hear them. I feel like the movie was a little overindulgent at times, especially with some of the sweeping shots and on Caladan, just resting on the scenery. And on, and on one hand, it's beautifully shot. So it's not like it's not enjoyable in any way. But I also feel like you could have taken that time and expanded expanded Dr. Yue's part because he's barely in the film. <laughs> yeah. And it's really important. He's a really important character. And so I feel like you're kind of, you know, if you're limiting yourself to two and a half hours, you're, you're kind of cutting out some of the character work that I would love to see. And you are using these shots that are lingering on the scenery when I don't think you necessarily need to. I think if you have a Lord of the Rings situation where you have a huge extended cut, those lingering shots are fine if you add back in that character work, you know, that I was missing from UA. Um, like we missed the scene when Duncan Idaho accuses Jessica of being the traitor. Um, the the dining uh, dining um, scene from the book, like, and I know you can't have everything, right? But I feel like those were good scenes, and I kind of missed having them. Yeah, I've said this multiple places online, uh, but I'll say it here again. For me, the movie felt like the book. Mm, yeah and that's the highest compliment that i can give it yeah there's definitely scenes that i was missing i I do enjoy the scene with you know the dining room scene uh but it's great that you still had you know this it's almost like easter eggs right like there's the painting of his dad there's Mm -hmm. the bowl right so you can kind of piece those scenes together if you've read the book it's kind of a nod but if not it's just oh wow they have some interesting you know things on the walls um the thing that struck me the most was the cinematography it is such a beautiful film. And we, you know, we talk about sense of scale all the time. And this movie had just massive things. You know, they, uh, Denis Villeneuve had said m- many times, like, see this on the th- in the theater if you can. Because mm-hmm. it, it's, you're going to lose something other than that. And I watched it at home. Uh, on the, my TV's not small. So it, it, was, it was nice. I would like to see it in the theater if I get a chance to, to see it. But it was interesting. I went and, you know, did, dug a little deeper and see who did the cinematography. And it's... And we'd mentioned him actually before we did our Rogue One episode. Mm. Uh, Greg Frazier, who did the cinematography wrote for Rogue One, which we have multiple times talked about how great the sense of scale is in that film, making the Death Star appear as big as it does. And you know, here he is again doing that that same thing. Same so thing. Yep. It made you know it made sense. I'm like, yes, of course. And you know, I'd I, I like the music a lot too. I'm I'm just a big Hans Zimmer guy anyway, and I've I've loved all the stuff he's done for for DC and all the Christopher Nolan films. And so, but it's a different flavor in this one. I mean, there are yeah. still some some heavy drums here and there, but <laughs> the heavy um, heavy yeah, bass that, coming in. Sure, wow. uh, <laughs> I love that though. <laughs> uh, and you know, some of the the choral arrangements were for some kind of some trippy things that kind of bringing in that native vibe, which uh, was some interesting choices. But cool, I, I like that a lot. My you know my really my one quibble, and it's really a small thing because you can't have everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that. In the Gom Jabbar scene, you don't have Paul doing the litany of fear. Mm. You have his mom outside doing it. And the way I reconcile those is that she's kind of projecting that he's going to be doing this. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And that's and that's fine. I would at some point like to hear him say it because sure. it's just such a it's one of my favorite things. But I did really enjoy in that scene uh, where at one point you see him like the switch flips with him, and you see his face change to determination, and you see the Reverend Mother just kind of taken back, mm-hmm. and like that. Even as I'm talking about now, I'm getting chills. It was such a powerful moment of, oh wow, like this is not going the way you thought it was going to go. And this guy really is, he's the real deal. So that, I thought that was a, was a great part in the film. Yeah. And, you know, it reminds me because right after that, uh, Jessica and Paul are having a conversation and the way it's shot, there's like two close-ups as they're talking, but when it pulls back, they're actually quite far away and there's this kind of storm between them. Yeah. And I thought that was like a, a little beautiful piece of cinematography that is illustrating you know, the character emotions and what they're going through at that moment. Um, I wanted your opinion. I saw this uh, on Twitter somewhere and I, I'm blanking on, on who said it, but they brought up that the film is is mirthless. There's no humor in, in the film, really. There's, I think there's two jokes. There's, you know, am I putting on muscle? No, you're not. And, <laughs> and, and smile. I am smiling. Yeah. <laughs> Which right. are both funny. That works. What did you think? What do you think about that? The fact that there's not really any humor or well, even first if you off, agree with it. Yeah, no, I, I don't. I mean, it's a heavy movie. It, it is. And, but then again, like I'm a DC guy and, and I like Zack Snyder. And so that doesn't bother me that much. But um, Jason Momoa is my favorite part of the film. He's incredibly charismatic and like there's mirth everywhere where, where he's at. You know, he's just, even in the scene where um, Stilgar comes in and, and spits. Like it's, true. it's, it's a great, it's a great scene. He's like, no, hold on. And it, it lightens it, you know, <laughs> yeah, and then like, he spits it too. And it's like, what a, what a great moment that is too. Just like, you know, this is how precious water is. Like, this is a, I'm giving you something. I'm giving you some of my water uh, for that. It, I mean, it is a heavy film. Mm-hmm. There's, it's not unintentionally funny. Like Lynch's film was mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's played straight. Uh, I don't think it has, I mean, you could get kind of ponderous with this too, where like the, the film could be a little bit full of itself and not recognize like, yeah, you're, you're doing a space fantasy. It's kind of goofy. Like, you just buy in. Like, it's magic, essentially. But I didn't think that it was overbearing in any kind of mirthless way. I, I still think that it was it was fun. I think seeing, mo- like, even that moment I mentioned earlier from the Gom Jabbar, like, that was like, whoa, that was cool. Like, that was a moment of kind of relief and also kind of flipping the tables where I didn't think it was... I don't know. I guess it depends. Like, what do, what do they mean by mirthless? Like, do they mean that there's just no jokes or do they mean there's no moments of levity? Because well, those see, are two very different things. I, I kind of feel like with all the talk that's going on about Doom, and it's being talked about quite a bit online, I feel like a lot of people were talking about the film and the influences that it had on mm-hmm. Star Wars, on fantasy, on, on sci-fi going forward. And so I think if you went in... And you were expecting kind of a proto New Hope. Mm-hmm. You might be kind of disappointed if you went in because yeah. they are very different tonally. Um, I think that Dune just is a more serious story. It's on face value. It's about the hero's journey. It's about Paul and betrayal and politics. It's kind of Game of Thrones politics backstabbing meets Star Wars fantasy, right? But that isn't, it's, they're not the same. I, no. th- I think that Dune is more ethereal, more philosophical in its ideas. And and ultimately, it's kind of a cautionary tale. And, and I think that, you know, I saw that and I was like, that is kind of interesting, though, because I wonder how many people went in thinking it's going to be like Star Wars. <laughs> and yeah. it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's no. its own thing. Yeah. And uh, we are officially at this point, they've greenlit the sequel, yeah, which, which is, is fantastic. Great. You know, because that was another thing that I had when it was over. It's like, when do, when's the next one coming? Mm-hmm. Which hadn't even been greenlit until, but it was almost immediately after. It was like during the weekend or Monday. Yeah, it was, it was Monday pretty when they, quick. Uh, when they officially greenlit that. So we got to wait two years, which isn't super long. It's not bad. Um, but like, I'd wreck the one. I'd like to watch it now. <laughs> I Because I just love the end of the book. I think there's going to be an amazing box set in 10 years <laughs> that will enjoy there we go so speaking of mirth the film that we focused on this week is full of mirth 
1984 is Ghostbusters. Uh, how's that for a segue? Yeah, that was fantastic. Very smart. There you go. <laughs> I've been working on that. So um, let's talk about your overall thoughts for Ghostbusters from 1984, Matt. What are, you, what are your opening thoughts? <sighs> so I haven't seen the original Ghostbusters in a while. Off the top of my head, maybe 10 years. <laughs> like yeah. it's, it's been a while. And on one hand, I think a lot of the film really holds up very well. Um, I think the interactions with the team itself are pretty fantastic. Um, some of the effects look horrible, but it, you know, it's a comedy, it's a fun film and I'm willing to roll with it. Um, without going into too much detail, there were some aspects that I just did not like that really rubbed me the wrong way. And I was really oh. surprised. Oh, we got to dig into that. Yeah. So we, we will come back to that. But so I want to yeah, hear yeah. your overall thoughts and we'll, we'll loop back around. Uh, yeah, definitely. So, so first off, um, quick mention that Ghostbusters Afterlife is coming out in a couple weeks, uh, on November 19th. And so that's one of, definitely one of the reasons, uh, that we're doing this, this episode now. I've, I love Ghostbusters. That's another reason. And I watch that film like, probably once a year. It's, it's one of my, one of my favorite comedies. Um, it is, I want to talk a lot about at the end, about the year that it came out, 1984. It's mm -hmm. the second highest grossing film in 1984 to, uh, Beverly Hills Cop. That was the number one film that year. Uh, critically acclaimed, made a ton of money. Uh, I agree. It still holds up, I think, for the most part. I mean, the the stop motion stuff is just <laughs> atrocious. <laughs> but the puppets are great. Yeah. I love the puppets. I love the ghost effects. Um, I love the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. I still mm -hmm. think that works pretty well. A lot of that due to their actors' reactions. I mean, it's that we talk about this a lot. You know, they have to sell it. And I think that they do do really, really well. I, I love the concept of of ectoplasm. Mm -hmm. I've always thought that was cool. You know, somebody blows their nose and you want to keep it. <laughs> it's great. What a great line. There's so many good lines. We'll get to that part. Um, there's some early product placement in this one that um, that's always kind of stood out to me, especially that box at Cheez-Its. Yes, so that, bright. I, that actually stood out it's to me too. Super bright. <laughs> um, but I love, one thing I loved and that I've noticed uh, in the last few times is that there's kind of fake product placement of the Stay Puft Marshmallows in mm -hmm. Dana's apartment early on, mm -hmm. which is kind of foreshadowing a little bit, uh, which is kind of fun uh, that they didn't go with a fake brand of that. Yeah. Uh, they did go with a fake brand of that. But uh, yeah, I have to come back to the chemistry between the three leads. Like it feels like they, they came up together, which they did. You know, both um, Murray and Aykroyd were on Saturday Night Live and I think they were all in Second City at one point. And uh, you also have the... SCTV, the Second City's version of Saturday Night Live, the, the Canadian version. Have you ever seen that, Matt? No. I don't know if you've ever seen I, it. It's I'm on a, cable. I'm not a big fan of SNL. And yeah, and, like and I'm the, I don't watch the new ones, but like the old ones. They used to have them on, on Nick at Night of all places. Like, <laughs> I think in the in the early 90s they did, and that's where I got caught up, and I actually got to see like Coneheads and um, the original, you know, the Blues Brothers with the skit before it was a movie and, and those kind of things, and early Murray like singing the Star Wars theme, theme song and that kind of stuff. Well, SCTV was a Canadian, essentially a Canadian version of that. It's a skit show that came out of uh, Second City. And But the people that were on there, Harold Ramis was on there, Rick Moranis was on there, John Candy was on there, Eugene Levy was on there. So it was very much an, you know, the Canadian version of SNL, but tons of like high, it's still, still the same quality of, of comedic actors. And uh, that's where Bob and Doug McKenzie, who did Strange Brew, come, came from. So mm -hmm. um, a lot of good stuff on there. So... Let's talk about cinematography. Mm -hmm. We'll start getting into some of your nitpicks maybe soon. Uh, did you have anything interesting for cinematography? Because I have a ton of stuff. But why don't you start you and I'll I'll jump off what okay. you've got. Okay. Uh, so as you know, as literature teachers, we talk about uh, indirect characterization a lot, and we have an acronym that we use sometimes. Uh, it's, it's steel, right? You can tell who a character is based on what they say, what they think effects on others, the actions and how they look. And I really like the opening shot of the door that says Vankman burn in hell as our intro to Peter Vankman, Bill Murray's character, because without even meeting him, we already have a preconceived idea who this guy is and who he's irritated, right? <laughs> he does not have the best reputation that he has graffiti on his door before we even meet him. I thought that was great. Um, another thing that I liked a lot was that you have this um, very clearly set up rule of thirds in the elevator as they're discussing the proton packs. 
And then what's funny about that is that they try and move away after they turn on Ray's back, um, Dan Aykroyd's back, and then they just six inches over to the side, uh, try to move out of that. But they're still, they do move, there's an empty middle mm-hmm. at that point. Uh, some things that I didn't expect, but really liked seeing this time, I had forgotten about, is because Peter Bankman, Bill Murray's character, is, is very cocky throughout most of the film. But he has a couple of close-ups on his face where you see that like it kind of he kind of drops the act and it happens the first time he's confronted with Slimer mm-hmm. the green ghost and it also happens when uh, they're in the in the library at the beginning and he's he has the opening line to the to the librarian ghost and she shushes him mm-hmm. and the look on his face is just drops yeah. it's just complete <laughs> he's just like oh <laughs> that's that's not good uh, some other things that are, I thought were cool was that uh, there's lots of triangles in this film. I always like looking for those. I think the way things are set up. I noticed this at first uh, in the banquet room on their first uh, their first call, the first official call at the hotel. And at one point, you see them kind of jockeying for position. And it reminded this is weird. I don't know why it reminded me of this, but it reminded me a little bit of like the triangle offense in basketball, the Texas winter offense, where like. Bill Murray comes in and takes Dan Aykroyd's place and then Aykroyd fills in the other gap for that. Like they're kind of just jockeying that way. Mm-hmm. But it's a triangle the whole time. And then, of course, there's a triangle as they're uh, shooting the, the proton packs up into the ceiling to get uh, to get Slimer. And you also see that scene kind of echoed later on where you have, there's a super wide shot. Again, rule of thirds where you have uh, the terror dogs or the hellhounds, Zool on the far left, Vince Clortho on the far right. Like it's super wide. Mm-hmm. And I know I used to see this movie on, on TV where they would do a pan and scan on a 4-3 TV, and you wouldn't be able to see both of those things because it's a really, really wide shot. Uh, but they're set up really nicely so that you have this triangle uh, of the lightning that opens up the door uh, for Gozer. So I'll let you talk for a second. A couple, couple things I noticed. Um, I particularly liked the use of the camera movement. Um, and I noticed this first right away when they're in the library. And how the camera was in kind of the scary, quote unquote, scary moments, uh, the camera would um, essentially roll in front of the actors. You could see their faces the entire time. But there were quite a few moments when they were fairly long shots. It wasn't like they were trying to imitate like a one shot, right? But they would hold the camera shot very long. And it stood out to me enough because it doesn't feel like that's as common anymore holding those shots. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think it's more effective because it starts to build some of that tension when the characters are trying to run away from the ghosts and you can see their faces. You can kind of see behind them as if, okay, when's it going to appear behind them? So I enjoyed that. Um, a lot of times throughout the film, um, there was some good depth to the shots. And what I mean by that is they would have um two characters in frame where you could see both characters when they're talking to the mayor at the end. Uh, mm-hmm. There are a couple of times when you can see all the actors and stuff and you can kind of see them all reacting to the conversation going on. And I really enjoy when films do that and not just simply uh, close-ups of the people, whoever's talking, right? Because then you miss everything that's going on, especially in comedy. Uh, mm-hmm. There are several moments when, um, when they're up on top of the building and they get blown away by Sigourney Weaver. Um, and right after she asks him if, if, if he's a God, right. And she blows him away. And I think it's, um, it's Ernie Hudson, uh, his character. Yeah. He says, if anybody asks if you're a God, you always say yes. Right. Right. But you can see all their faces in them all like looking at it. And yeah. so it's like those kinds of shots. I really appreciate because, that you can see everything that's going on. You can see the the comedic reactions of the characters. Um, even the, just little things like when the librarian is walking by the library card drawers and all the cards start popping out. Yeah. It's just shots like that where you can see it all and it, it allows some breathing space. In some ways, it kind of reminded me almost a little bit of, of Star Wars, the cinematography, in the sense of it felt more documentary style where it wasn't trying to do anything too fancy. It wasn't trying too hard. You know, we just talked about the new Dune where it's like, okay, they set this shot up to make it look beautiful and it worked, but it it feels very like you meant to do that. This feels more like, 
it's not like a mockumentary style, right? But it feels yeah. almost more like peeking behind the curtain <laughs> at these guys' yeah. jobs. You know, it, it feels like a little more, I don't want to say mockumentary, it's not documentary style, but it's, right. you know, it's, it's less concerned with creating those beautiful shots and more about being clear about the, the comedy and the facial expressions and things that are going on. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. So you look at, uh, and I agree with you that, that kind of looks like that. Um, the scene, I was also thinking of the scene where, uh, Walter Beck brings the, the police officer down and the guy from Con Ed yeah. down at the same time. You can kind of see everybody in the scene at the same time right. instead of kind of doing shot counter shot over and over again. And then yeah, and you, you, have, you can see the hesitancy of the guy to like shut it off. Yeah, and, yeah. exactly. Well, you have, you have Laszlo Kovacs doing cinematography, who's a veteran cinematographer, you know, been doing movies since the sixties, the easy rider, five easy pieces and you know, all the way up through, I did multiplicity also for Harold Ramis, wide ranging, uh, you know, list of work that he's done and then you also have uh, you know a couple of guys editing one of which uh sheldon khan did one of flew over the cuckoo's nest that's from 75 so you got guys uh david blewett also did editing you have guys who've been in the business for a while they're mm -hmm. not you know what's the newest latest trend like they're gonna do it the way they've been doing it and they've got enough experience to know like sometimes like just leave the camera where it's at right don't yeah. over edit. we talked about this with Stuart baird as well just kind of let it go um, one thing I do want to touch on, you said, you said Sigourney Weaver hits him, but you meant, you meant Gozer though. Well, yes. Right. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cause she's, <laughs> she's his girlfriend who became a dog. Right. Um, yeah. Um, anything else with, uh, with cinematography? I had a couple other things. Um, I like the difference in, in color where you had just kind of the nondescript gray uniforms. It's very utilitarian. Right. And they kind of talk about the fact that they're just exterminators. Like that's kind of the way it's presented mm. uh, versus you have like the neon ghosts uh, and the lightning and stuff like that. It, kind of, it just really it pops because you have this kind of nondescript versus this very outlandish um, bright neon colors. I thought that was great. And I mentioned the Stay Buff Marshmallow before, which is that's fully camera work, right? I mean, it's a dude in a suit shot from a really low angle and then superimposed over the city. And it's like, it works. Mm -hmm. I think it works really well. Yeah. I will kind of jump ahead a little bit and talk about the, like the prop design and the props and stuff because yeah. you mentioned the the suits and I do think that's a, a, a nice contrast. I think that probably my, I should say one of my favorite aspects in this film was the um, prop design. I think yeah. it's, it's just very fun. Uh, the proton packs are weird enough and like they have the moment where the sound design too right is for the proton packs is fantastic yeah. but you have that moment when they're in, in the elevator for the first time in the hotel and they turn it on and you hear the whir of it you know uh coming up yep. and you know these are like unregistered nuclear devices on our backs <laughs> and then the other yeah. two kind of scoot over and it's um but just the design of like the traps right yep and how like when they first catch the the green ghost right and it's coming down from the hotel and it closes on the trap and then you see the little blinking light and it's just like there's just a moment of tension of like is it going to work and it's like it does uh but that's all visual i love when he's explaining uh i believe it's uh egon who's explaining uh to winston at when like the first day he's hired like Right. Here's how the trap works. Like you put it in yeah. and I just remember thinking when I saw that, it's like, that looks real. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know what a ghost trap would look like, but it would look like that. Right. And it's just like practical on, uh, on a level of it. It looks authentic to the world, but it's also funny because he's like <laughs> this button, this button, this button, and you're done. Like you're right. you know setting a microwave or something, yep. Uh, and so it, it's that kind of blend of fantastic with the mundane that I think makes this film as special as it is. Yeah, I, I agree. It's played. I mean, that's one thing I talked about a lot in performance is that it's and let's yeah we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, performance that is played straight for the most part. Mm -hmm. Like nobody's really mugging for the camera or like wink nod to the audience other than. You know, maybe Rick Moranis, he's a little bit over the top. He might be the only one that's a little bit melodramatic, but he's a nerd, super nerd, and he's possessed later on as, you know, he's a dog. Um, but 
everybody's, you know, it's pretty much they're just they trust the script enough to just kind of go with it. Mm -hmm. And so the jokes just come naturally from just the absurdity and kind of the deadpan deliveries. Well, and that's what I love about the the humor is it's very much like a situational comedy. It's a yeah. it's a workplace comedy. And it's like you've got a bunch of guys and they've got dif different personalities and stuff. And then they're trying to be a team. They're trying to do extraordinary things. Right. But it's also just a job at the end of the day. And I think that's what allows, I think, a little bit of connection where it's like, okay, I, I, I get, they look tired. I think they even like one of that's one of the lines in there. It's like, you know, you look tired. Like, do yeah. I, you didn't look like, yeah, you didn't look, you still look like this. Yeah, exactly. Right before that. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty great. And so it's like, yeah, I think we've all felt that way one day or another at work. And so it's like that wonderful blend of, of just the, the, the weird and the spooky and the fantastic with it's Monday. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, there's a call sheet. Yeah. Uh, what did you think about you know the the music? You know, it gets a lot of a lot of attention is, is drawn to the theme song, which is fantastic. You know, Ray, Ray, Ray Parker Jr. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a great great song. Played multiple times. I believe played three times. Played over the uh, at the beginning. You have that cold open, mm -hmm. which I also love that there's a cold open with that, and then the logo dissolves, and you get to hear the theme song, and then you have uh, a very '80s montage, which is fantastic. There's montages a lot in it. There's a lot. Films we're gonna do. <laughs> uh, which is great. A nice way to kind of catch us up from what they did one case to now they're veterans. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have Casey Kasem doing the announcing on there, which is which is fun too, because that's very much, hey, it's an 80s thing. It's, you know, it's America's Top 40 uh, dropped in there. Uh, but I think what also doesn't get enough attention is the actual score. Yeah. Um, by Elmer Bernstein is, is I think, is fantastic. You know, because the Ghostbusters have a light motif. And it's not, you know, the Ghostbusters song. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of just little jaunty piano. Uh, it's heard a ton of times. I, mean, I didn't take an actual count, but I would gather it's a dozen to twenty different times where you kind of, you hear that. And you also have this kind of lovely orchestral theme for Dana, uh, where you have you hear it at the end. It's kind of the main way you hear it, but you also hear it when when Peter asks her out, when like they're out. I think that's Rockefeller Center. Yeah, yeah, out, where I'm they're out sure. there. You hear it a couple of times. Uh, and it's so it's, you have this, and you also have lots of other pop music in 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 the music. There's in the movie. There's a lot more of, than I remember. <laughs> yeah, mix and match. Yeah. And so it's kind of this really interesting balance. Um, but I think, and I as a kid, I always remembered, you know, the cleaning up the town song and mm. magic with their ghost release and saving the day at the end. I always loved that song. But you know the, you know Elmer Bernstein's score does the heavy lifting, and you just it's it fits so well that you don't you know, pay that much attention to it. Mm. I, mean, I guess it kind of does its job by being in the background. It's like an offensive lineman, right? It doesn't <laughs> screw up. And so you don't pay attention to it. Uh, it's a, you great, know, it has it's that, a great way to, to describe score. <laughs> right? I love that. You know, it's got that the, the creepy bendy music. Yeah, he, uh, I yeah. had to look this up with what that is. It's, uh, it's an owned Martineau. It's a French instrument, uh, which is great. And it has that, like, it feels creepy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a great score. Uh, I really like it. I just want to, Give some shout outs to Elmer Bernstein, who's been around and did a lot of did a lot of great scores. You know, he's been around forever too. He did he did the Ten Commandments for crying out loud, mm -hmm. right? Uh, he did the Ten Commandments, did Magnificent Seven, To Kill a Mockingbird. You know, he did those like prestigious movies, and then he did Animal House and Airplane and Trading Places and Meatballs and Stripes for Ivan Reitman. And so he's a natural selection, you know, to do Ghostbusters even after he's done all these massive, very uh, very serious, you know, biblical epics for crying out loud. Uh, but a great job on this film. I think it was uh, very interesting because it felt like the score kind of um, seesawed back and forth between trying to be creepy and scary, mm -hmm. and like the, the 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 I don't know what you what, what instrument it was you looked up. Uh, <laughs> the owned Martin, right? But it's yeah. got that kind of a, a classic <laughs> horror movie vibe. And then at times, <laughs> what what pops into my head was like Scooby Doo, yeah. where it's like goofy, yep. and it works because that's the kind of movie it is, where it's got a blend of it's also, you know, goofy but scary, yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's trying to be both, and it it, it <laughs> yeah. strikes a pretty good balance, I think, between those two. 
Yeah, and it's a movie where the big bad ultimately is a giant marshmallow man, which is fantastic. It's my favorite. Which is, part of and, it, and it works. Yeah. You know, it totally does. But it also has like some legitimately creepy things. Like mm-hmm. you think of like that cab driver. Like yeah. that could be scary for little kids. I remember when I first saw the trailer. I mean, this is eighty four, so I would have been probably eight when I first saw this trailer, and like it scared me legitimately. Mm-hmm. I saw it on TV. I was like, oh my gosh, this looks scary. And my parents were like, no, like this is the guys that are in it. This is going to be a funny movie. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I didn't see it in the theater. I saw it later on on VHS. Um, that's videotape, kids, uh, <laughs> and and liked it. But you know, it has it does it strikes a balance. It can be legitimately scary, and you know, Zool and Vince are pretty scary as in their dog forms too. But ultimately, yeah, it has it. It does it hits the sweet spot. Well, I also think the effects for like the dogs to make them look more scary than <laughs> yeah. than they might be if they were CGI. I don't know. If, yeah, but because. They, I don't know, they look terrifying enough, but I don't yeah. know. It's something about the, the the way the stop motion or whatever they use also kind of, yeah. for me, sells it a little bit. Sure. It's it's unnatural. Yeah. And I know we have, I've seen a little bit of that they're going to be in, in, small spoiler, in Afterlife mm-hmm. too. So um, that'll be obviously updated. I don't think they're going to do stop motion, but. No, probably not. Uh, I don't, it'll be interesting to see if it works as well or better. <laughs> I don't know, because you bring up a good point. There is something, and as a kid, that didn't bother me at all. But even still, it looks surreal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a good word for it, too. So we talked a little bit about uh, the performances and how the humor is coming from the writing. I I just wanted to say also just how much Sigourney Weaver is amazing in this film. Mm -hmm. Uh, The things I noticed, I mean, I'd always known that she was great doing, you know, playing two parts, essentially, right? And she gets to play, uh, gets to play Zool. And sells that beautifully. But she also just is very understated disgust with Vakeman when she shows up in her in her apartment and she <laughs> she's just not having any of it. Yep. And it's it's beautiful. It's cause she could totally just be like, You're a jerk, get out, and but it's restrained, right? She's just annoyed and it's like maybe if I just <laughs> stop talking, he'll leave eventually. And and the same with Rick Moranis' character as well. Yeah. No, that's a good is, point. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So she's she's trained she's trained herself to kind of deal with <laughs> annoying characters. Yes, and th- yeah. and this is where I'm going to uh, rant a little bit about let's what do I it. didn't like, which was Bankman. Okay, almost exclusively. <laughs> oh my goodness! So he's sacrilege. Keeping things PG, he's just a jerk. Yeah, and like I, you brought up a great point where it's like I think. The filmmakers know that, right? Because you have that scrawl on the, the graffiti, right? At the beginning. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And, and um, we've, we didn't talk about this, but the, the scene where he is doing the um, ESB, right? With the. Yeah. <laughs> and he's, yeah, I had that earlier because they show you the card, but they don't show you the card. Right. Yeah. And so it's like, it's it, they're very clearly establishing what kind of person he is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's just so slimy. I don't, <laughs> and like, I know I get that that's kind of what they're going for. Right. But like, it really looks like he's hitting on one of his students at the beginning of the film. Oh, he's not, doesn't look like it. He is. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. But you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I do. That's it. It, it kind of disgusts me. It's like, eh, yeah. I don't like that. Right. Yeah. Um, The coming on to uh, Dana Barrett, Sigourney Weaver. Right. Yeah. Where it's like this woman is legitimately freaked out. She's looking for help. And he comes in and he's just dropping things. She's like, oh, that's the bedroom, but nothing happens in there. And he's like, that's a shame. Or, you know, whatever what, he says. What a crime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, he's like, you know, I'm just going to go for it. And she's like, yep. oh, God. And I just felt <laughs> so bad. And it's well acted and stuff. And I, it just... I don't like it. And, and I think I nailed down why. Okay. So, um, there was a video essay by a YouTuber, uh, Lindsay Ellis, and she was examining the guardians of the galaxy film. Right. And Peter Quill, I think is, is similar to Bill Murray's character, Peter Venkman in terms of attitude. Right. And, uh, she brought up this great point that, in kind of a traditional 
film, Hollywood film, the character, the main character gets the girl at the end. That's part of the quote unquote prize, right? Is he gets the girl. But she brought up the point, like, does he really deserve the girl? Because if you think about Venkman and his attitudes and his actions, does he, is he really being a good, like, partner for Sigourney Weaver? I don't think he is. And it, it, especially at the beginning. I, I, he's creepy, he's slimy, <laughs> and he gets rewarded by the end. And it's like, but what did he do? Like, he didn't grow right. at all. He didn't become a better person. There's just kind of a montage of Sigourney laughing at his antics. And that's it. Right. Now, in Guardians of the Galaxy, by contrast, by the end of the first film, uh, Peter Quill and Gamora do not end up together. Now, there's some pretty clear like relationship between the two, right? And we could probably easily guess that they will be together at some point. They do care about each other, but they are not together. He doesn't get rewarded for his behavior. And it's not really until uh, Peter begins to grow as a good person that Gamora becomes more uh, attached to him, really in the second film and beyond, a uh, second Guardians film and beyond. And I was like, that's a good point. This is kind of a perfect example of like, Bankman's not a good guy. He just isn't. <laughs> and I, I think you can make the argument that like being a good guy wouldn't be funny. Like, yeah, part of the humor of Bankman being a jerk, like to the EPA guy, right? Sure. So that, great. That's funny. Yeah. Yes. I don't know. It just, it rubbed me the wrong way. I, I did not, did not like it. And, and I think the other thing is, is that that is largely left behind halfway through the film or so. Like that kind of slimy behavior just kind of drops out a little bit. It seemed like to me. Okay. Uh, yeah. A couple things on that. I, I am assuming you've seen Ghostbusters 2. I have, and I don't remember anything about okay. it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. I watched the second one just the other week, uh, just this last week as well. Um, and what's interesting, you bring that up, and I think that that's a valid point. That's I think that the writers, which would be Aykroyd and uh, Harold Ramis, recognize that. Because when we get to Ghostbusters 2, it's five years later, and Dana has been married and now is just getting a divorce from somebody other than Peter. She's had a baby with somebody else. Like Peter and her did not work out because of the fact that he was a child, essentially. That's kind of the way that she describes him. And so, you know, it's in the moment, you can kind of see like in a stressful situation, like oh, it's sure. convenient and all that stuff. Yeah. So you can look at, at that as, and I'm not saying that's excused or whatever else. But right, right. I, I think it's interesting that you bring that up because I think that, that those discussions probably did take place. Yeah. Like, should we just have them be together, have them be married, mm -hmm. whatever it's going to be when we start the second movie? But we don't. Right. We say, you know what? This was not built on anything substantial. He's not a mature enough adult to have a relationship with her. He doesn't deserve her. He hasn't done anything to deserve her yet. And so let's not have that happen. And so I think that you do see in Ghostbusters 2, uh, to just have a small side, that he does grow through that. He makes some more mature choices through it. He's much less snarky in that film, mm -hmm. um, at least around her. Yeah. You know? when I think that's... He makes a couple of jokes about, about you know, they're, oh, I have all new moves and stuff like that. But um, <laughs> Sure. But it's like... But, you know, but he's that's still good. Peter. But, that, yeah. but that's, that's good exactly. character growth. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what I would want to see. And... I thought it was a really interesting point because that does happen. Yeah. Sure. Where, you know, the main character gets rewarded because he's the main character, not because he's a good guy. Yeah. And this movie kind of has that. What I like though, because I, like I said, I've seen Ghostbusters too, but I remember nothing about it. Yeah. That's fantastic. I like it a lot. Yeah. I, I highly enjoy it. I think you should and, watch it again. And as a, as a series that makes me happy <laughs> Good. because that that tells me that Aykroyd and Ramis are are looking at it as as screenwriters and and looking at those characters and being like, does this make sense, or is this just happening because that's what's supposed to happen? Right, and it doesn't sound like, you know, they they carried that into the second one. Yeah, but it just, I'll put it this way, this is kind of workplace comedy. I would not want to work with Venkman. No, I'll watch a no, movie about him, but I wouldn't want to yeah. work with him. <laughs> yeah, that that and he's really just kind of that's a character Bill Murray's played a lot. Yeah, 
right? That's kind of what you're looking for. You, Bill Murray's in the movie, at least you know prior to, I mean, he did a serious film right after this. Uh, but when he was doing those films in the 80s, you know, from Meatballs on up, it was like, that's Bill Murray. That's mm-hmm. that's, that's who he is. That's the, what you're going to get yeah. uh, on, in this. So was there another thing that you had another quibble with or was that your main? It was just it. Yeah. I didn't okay. like Vagman. <laughs> yeah. So watch Ghostbusters 2. Okay. Um, there are so many great lines in this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about dialogue. Like I wrote down, I think all of them, <laughs> the entire movie. Uh, do you have, I'll limit myself to just one. Do you have a favorite line or exchange just so we can include this, but not spend, because literally I can make the whole, whole episode could be about the dialogue in this film. Cause I think it's so funny. Um, you go first. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go with one that didn't used to make me laugh, but it makes me laugh more now. And it is when they are, uh, checking out the fire station. Mm-hmm. And Vankman says, what do you think, Egon? And Egon has this rant where he says, I think this building should be condemned. There's serious mental fatigue in all the load-bearing members. The wiring is substandard. It's completely inadequate for our power needs. And the neighborhood is like a demilitarized zone. And Ray comes in. Hey, does this pole still work? (laughs) Wow, this place is great. When can we move in? (laughs) And like, that's it. Yeah. It's over. He doesn't care. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) It has a fire pole. (laughs) The building should be condemned. It's horrible. But it has a pole. We're doing it. It, but it's his money, yeah, right? Yeah, because it's his house. Right. That, they're more three times. Um, <laughs> there, it's so true. There, there are a ton of great lines. Um, I'm actually going to go with one that isn't comedic, and it's yeah. more like a passage. But sure. it's when uh, Winston and Ray are in the car towards the end. Yes, and they are setting up. They're building up um, the tension for the end of the film. And Winston says, hey, Ray, do you believe in God? Ray says, never met him, which I yep. by itself is a good line. Yep. Uh, but then later on in the conversation, um, Winston again says, hey, Ray, do you remember something in the Bible about the last days when the dead would rise from the grave? Ray says, I remember Revelation 6.12. And I looked and he opened the sixth seal and behold, there were a great earthquake and the sun became as black as sackcloth and the moon became as blood. Winston says, and the seas boiled and the skies fell. Judgment day. Judgment day. Yeah. Every ancient religion has its own myth about the end of the world. Myth. Ray, has it ever occurred to you that maybe the reason we've seen been so busy lately is because they did have been rising from the grave? It's like, I don't know. To me, that's a yeah. great little conversation. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's building character, right? It's kind of flushing out the character of these two. I love that line. Do you believe in God? Never met him. <laughs> Never met him. <laughs> Great character line. Yep. But it's also building the tension for the plot, like the actual story of yeah. things are getting bad. And, you know, these guys who are the Ghostbusters, they're getting nervous. Like yeah. they're not, they're not sure about this. Okay. I got one more rant. I just remembered okay. because I'm thinking about the end of the film. So EPA guy. Yep. He's not Ultra wrong. Pack. Which part? <laughs> I was watching this, and now the the actual person is a jerk. He's he's a bully. He's not yeah. going about it the right way, right? No. But he's also not wrong about like there should be some kind of check on the hazardous materials that these guys are using, right? Because it could be really dangerous. And I, I was thinking like, yeah, that, that makes sense. If I were living next to the Ghostbusters, I would want someone checking in on them. I don't know. But who? who who's more of an expert than Egon? I, I, this, is, this is the tricky thing. Yeah. Oh, I, I, really, I agree. But then it's like, yeah. I, I think if, if they had come in and Egon, work with me here. Yeah. Show me what's going on. Is it, you know. Show me the plan. We wouldn't get the big explosion. I, and I know. And for, I know. Gozer. And this is this is a stupid <laughs> nitpick, right? Because it's yeah. that would ruin. So the, the movie, movie can happen, Matt. <laughs> but you know what I mean. I do know what you're saying. Where it's like, eh. No, and there have been essays written about this too. Yeah. And like, this is a movie right right in the middle of the '80s, and it's right. you know, yeah, it's deregulation and and it's you know, start jobs starting, you know, business, people starting their own business and all those things. That like, it's very much a 
pro small business, like just getting it off the ground type of thing. Yeah. Uh, and anti-regulation. But, but most small things. businesses like coffee shops aren't having like <laughs> nuclear, th- unregulated nuclear devices. Strapped true. Back, so <laughs> that's true. But most of them aren't run by ego. Yeah. So um, I will say there's a lot of lines that we left off. Yes, so if you're listening and there's a line that is your favorite line that we did not take, please, please email us, send us a GIF of that on Twitter. Uh, send us a speak by, let us know what your favorite line is. Cause I'm sure we didn't cover it. Cause there's so many and we could talk about this for an hour. Um, just on the on the lines, like listen, you smell something. I don't get that. That's another one by Ray. So good. Um, we talked a lot about body language, facial expressions. Peter's face was my favorite thing. Just watching his face just fall crestfallen when he's out of his element, which is again one of the few times that you see him kind of break that persona of like I'm just an all know it all jerk and I don't care about any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. He's authentically scared. Uh, I talked about the costumes a little bit already. I like that big hair. The big 80s hair yeah. was fun. Yeah. Egon's hair especially is like, I don't know, eight inches off the top of his head. Um, yeah, it looks like an 80s movie, but not over the top. There's not like crazy neon everywhere or anything like I that. I think it all all pretty fits pretty well. Yeah. You know, I was going to say, like when we talk about world building a little bit later, like really the biggest thing I just had was that it feels, for the most part, you talked about this with the props too. It's like this feels pretty realistic Mm -hmm. it's not over the top it's not obnoxiously stylized or anything it just kind of feels you know it feels real yeah it feels authentic to the world yeah and you know to again segue uh setting and design locations most of the exteriors the vast majority of them are really new york Mm -hmm. you know ivan reitman was on record as saying like this was going to be his new york movie uh and it is it shows you know so like it, by putting it in these actual, we talked about Rockefeller Center and, you know, 55 Central Park West is actually the building you could go to. That's where Gozer shows up. Uh, I love that some of this, they did guerrilla style. <laughs> so they were filming it and like had to leave because they didn't, <laughs> so they didn't get busted. They didn't, you know, they were not allowed to be filming there, but they did it anyway. Uh, so yeah, that's another part, like just being on location, which is another 80s thing that just, you can't, you know, you can't replicate that. It yeah. just feels feels real because it is well it was you know to to break up what we're talking about this is the same with the new dune they filmed yeah. a lot on location right and you can't fake that not not really yeah yeah i like the you know the firehouse is another piece mm-hmm. you know with set decoration that that feels like a workplace yeah you know all the wood on the walls weird and, and the, the lockers <laughs> yeah it's a weird one sure but filing cabinets yeah. like nothing's hidden yeah like it's all it's all out there it looks like a place you could walk into and ask for help or ask for a job like mm-hmm. what does uh one thing that i found this time doing research was the scene in in dana's apartment where uh, zul grabs her is that's a rubber door mm-hmm. and that's again that's a great practical effect they wouldn't do that practically now they'd probably do that cgi mm-hmm. but you have this flexible door where people's hands are being pushed against which is a creepy effect love that that whole scene is creepy as all get then punch you know and then it's you know crew members hands punching through the, the fabric of the chair yeah all you know all done in shot mm-hmm. right on camera so just another great way to do it and that's what i think why the movie holds up so well because we have a lot of those things also you know the eggs frying on the kitchen counter not cgi that's those are eggs that they superheated that kitchen counter and they start frying them right there. Mm-hmm. What a great effect. Yeah. What a great idea. A lot of the practical effects, uh, even the library cards being shot out from the very oh, beginning. beautiful. Yep. It was... Blowing those things out yep. with the air hose. Yep. It looks uh, fantastic, the effects. Okay. Uh, anything else with setting and design before we move on? I don't think so so with with characters i did a little bit of uh background uh, research on these two as we know we, we talked about the leads a lot but what i thought was interesting was that there is a lot of um on record who might have been playing those roles mm. so i thought this would be kind of interesting so we know bill murray plays peter vankman uh and Bill Murray has throughout his career been kind of non-committal, except for the last minute. Like when he signed up for this film, he kind of like, sure, I'll do it, but didn't really sign on the dotted line. So they didn't really know for sure that it was going to be him. Originally, it was going to be John Belushi, and then he died. And uh, those are to- I mean, this movie is going to be totally different. 
it was going to be like John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd going through space and traveling through time and a whole bunch of weird <laughs> stuff before Ivan Reitman was like, this is never going to work because it's going to be way too expensive. We'll never make it happen. And that's where Harold Ramis comes in and they kind of like, okay, we're going to need to ground this and turn this essentially into like, like you've mentioned, the workplace comedy. So here's some actors that could have played Peter Venkman. And I think a lot of them would have worked, but some of them maybe not so well. So Michael Keaton, Chevy Chase, Tom Hanks, Robin Williams, Steve Gutenberg, and Richard Pryor. And I could see some of them. I could see Michael Keaton doing that pretty well. Yeah. Chevy Chase, too. Yeah. And that's, again, that SNL connection. So Right. I feel like Robin Williams would be an interesting choice. Yeah. I don't see, see him as the jerk that that Venkman yeah. is. He doesn't typically play that. No. I mean, he has a couple of times, but. Yeah. He's not as, as hard edged yeah. as, as Bill Murray is. Uh, Dan Aykroyd was always going to be Ray because, mm. you know, he's the writer. Mm -hmm. uh, but for Dana Barrett, we had Daryl Hannah, maybe. Denise Crosby who was in Star Trek The Next Generation. That's probably the mo thing she's most famous for, Tasha Yar. Uh, Julie Roberts, who would have been really young uh, for that part at the time, 1984. Um, kind of interesting. Sigourney Weaver was great. Mm -hmm. And I know she had to kind of convince them that she could do comedy, which again, she's not really funny in this. Which is interesting, right? This is a we consider this a comedy, but the, it doesn't. She, it's, she's it's, more of the straight man in, yeah. in the comedy, but I think right. that's an important element of comedy is 100%. someone to play off of. So. Yep. Like we mentioned earlier, her reactions to Bill Murray just being obnoxious, mm -hmm. like she's letting us know that it's not okay. Yeah, the way he's being that way. Uh, Harold Ramis, co-writer, but also wasn't necessarily going to be in the movie. Right, he's also directed. He directed uh, a couple of things. What did he direct before this? He directed uh, one second here. Let me check my notes. Um, let's see. He also directed. Uh, he directed Caddyshack for crying out loud. Uh, did Groundhog Day later with Bill Murray too. So he directed a bunch of stuff. Um, but was and had written many things like Meatballs and Back to School and some other things. And uh, for his part, Christopher Walken was one of the ones that might have played him. Hmm. Uh, which I love Christopher Walken always, but that would have been, <laughs> would have been I don't know, might have been a little bit too, a little very different. Uh, John Lithgow, Christopher Lloyd, I can kind of see that. Yeah. Um, Jeff Goldblum, and Jeff Goldblum in anything, I'm good <laughs> with that. And then Michael Keaton was up for that one as well. Uh, the only one I think from this that I actually knew was that John Candy was originally offered the part of Lewis Tully. Hmm. Uh, but he was doing it so strangely that ultimately it didn't work out. Hmm. Interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. And there's there's actually, it kind of goes back and forth about uh, whether or not Eddie Murphy was originally going to play uh, Winston Zeddemore. Uh, Ackroyd says yes, and they had been in trading places together. Uh, of course, Ed Reitman says no. <laughs> so it's kind of a weird a weird thing. Ultimately, Eddie Murphy's in Beverly Hills Cop this same year, and so that doesn't, you know, wouldn't have worked out schedule-wise. I think that's probably the biggest reason he's not in the film. And that worked out pretty well for him. I mean, that's obviously a you know, that's going from a very small role. Ernie Hudson's role is not very big in this film, too. The lead role in Beverly Hills Cop was massive. Yeah. So, you know, good on him. Uh, and at one point, Paul Rubens was envisioned, Pee Wee Herman himself, envisioned as Goes with the Gozerian, <laughs> which I've also heard was going to be kind of a representation of uh, Igor Shandor. Is that how you say the name? I think that's, a, that's the guy who uh, was trying to bring Gozer and design the building uh, was going to be. Paul Rubens. So instead, we got the uh, this chick is toast lady. <laughs> so that's what I, that's what I found for for characters, just to kind of add a little bit of a historical context. So Matt, uh, I guess we're down to final thoughts. What are your final thoughts on Ghostbusters? I think final thoughts. Um... I think it really holds up as workplace comedy. It's, you know, it's it's something that has kind of struck me, and I know other people have have written about this too. Uh, the lack of comedies in recent movie years, um, and I feel like this this kind of comedy is something that could potentially bring some comedy films back because it's not a out and out just comedy it's, it's kind of an action comedy movie where you've, right. you've got the adventure and the characters and but it's also got that workplace element and i i would love to see more films 
that are made in that vein. And, you know, who knows, maybe they wouldn't turn out, you know, as, as good as, as Ghostbusters. But I, I just feel like it's, it's kind of a genre. It kind of, def- for me, it defined a genre of kind of the action comedy uh, workplace, that, that triangle of genre squished together. And I think it does it really well. I think the lar- the film largely holds up um, in, in the places that it doesn't. Seems like some of my character issues seem to have been addressed in, in Ghostbusters 2. Some of the effects I'm more than willing to forgive as the movie is very fun to watch. So overall, you know, I, I, I enjoyed coming back to it. Nice. Yeah, you know, it is. It's kind of the granddaddy of, you know, Men in Black mm, or... Yeah. That's probably the best, you know, type of movie in the same. Yeah, uh, in that same best best one in the in this type. I mean, there's yeah. several. R.I.P.D. is one that I think of. You mm-hmm. know, there's several. Like, oh wow, this is supposed to be like Ghostbusters. Uh, Evolution was another one. Yeah, David Duchovny. That's an Ivan Reitman film too. Just doesn't capture that same thing. No. Um, it's a, it's a very hard you know formula to crack. Um, and they've been trying. So hopefully, maybe we'll get some resurgence with with Afterlife. Film. Yeah, yeah, we'll hope so. Uh, I wanted to point out uh, the Ghostbusters was nominated for two Academy Awards. Didn't win either one, but it was nominated for Best Original Song for Ghostbusters. Lost to Stevie Wonder, I Just Called to Say I Love You. So you can go back and forth on which one that should, you know, holds up better. Uh, And then Best Visual Effects, which is interesting because we talked about the effects on that. It lost to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. So, eh, yeah. (laughs) Fair enough. I mean, come on. It's Indiana Jones. Um, this is my favorite thing from this, though, is that I mentioned it earlier. It's the second highest grossing film in 1984. And I'm going to go through. I want to let you know about some of the movies that came out this year because I remember I, I kind of had a sense grow, from going up in the 80s that there's just less movies out now mm-hmm. because it used to be you'd go to the movies and there'd be 10 movies that you want to see. And I thought maybe that's just an exaggeration. Like when you go into the toy store, no, there was an entire like 75 foot long wall of Star Wars figures. It wasn't that, but it felt like that. But just to give you an idea, first off, in 1984, this film was released on the same day as Gremlins, same day, and Top Secret, which is a Zucker Abrams Zucker movie, like Airplane. If you haven't seen it, it's hilarious. But here are some other films that came out in 1984. Again, it's the second highest grossing after uh, Beverly Hills Cop. So you have Footloose, This is Spinal Tap, Splash, uh, Romancing the Stone, 16 Candles, The Natural, Mentioned Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom only two weeks before. Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, one week before. Two weeks after it comes out, The Karate Kid, Cannonball Run 2, Conan the Destroyer, The Last Starfighter, The Muppets Take Manhattan, The NeverEnding Story, Revenge of the Nerds, Purple Rain, Red Dawn, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai, which is hilarious and makes sense it didn't make any, mo- any money because crowded. Uh, Dreamscape, which is like Inception in the 80s. The Terminator. A Nightmare on Elm Street, the first one. Supergirl, Beverly Hills Cop, as I mentioned. Dune, our last episode. Makes sense. I didn't make any money, too. Starman and both Breakin' and Breakin' 2, Electric Boogaloo. That's in one year. And I didn't even list them all. I just pulled out, like, the ones that I recognized mm-hmm. and knew that, like, this is like a classic film from the 80s. Mm-hmm. That's ridiculous. Yeah. I, I do wonder why. I mean, I wonder if it was that crop of filmmakers. I wonder, you know, because that's, you know, we talk about the blockbuster kind of being born with Star Wars, which is only a yeah. couple years really before. And, you know, movies take years to, to produce and make and stuff. I wonder if by that point, you know, they were trying to make those blockbuster hits and, mm-hmm. and push them out. And I also wonder, I mean, you know, putting aside COVID and all that, because that's thrown movies way off. <laughs> I felt like there was at least one movie I wanted to watch every month, which I, which felt pretty good. And, you know, I, I do look at this list and I recognize most of them. I don't know. I don't know why. Yeah. And it's not just summer too. I mean, that's kind of, we, we got into a a rut there for a while where it was like, everything had to come out in the summer and that's kind of changed a little bit. Mm -hmm. I remember that was like a big deal. Like Batman v Superman came out in March and that was like, and there's some other films that came out in February. They sort of, it's horror movies that typically would come out earlier. But like Beverly Hills Cop came out in December. Mm -hmm. You know, these are throughout like Footloose was like in February. Mm -hmm. So there was like through every month there was like four films, five films 
that were big money makers or mo- at least mov- movies that have like a you know a track record of being yeah that's that's a quintessential 80s movie this 1984 just being a just a math not to mention the movie 1984 came out in 1984 um just what a great year for for film is just kind of being that quintessential you know year in that decade yeah So as we close, we just want to say thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Email us at readingbetweenreels at gmail.com or use SpeakPipe app on our website. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast catcher. It really helps us get the word out about the show, and we'd love to hear your feedback. And if you haven't yet, please join our Facebook group. It's a safe place to share your thoughts, especially about this film and anyone else that we're doing. Uh, any other films and discuss all things related to those movies. One last thing. Our next episode will be a review of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. Uh, Feel free to send us an email or voicemail about your favorite moments from those three films and we'll share them on the next episode.